Father God, we, we thank you, Lord, for your, your grace and your mercy, Lord. We thank you for your many blessings that you've blessed us with. And Father, as I studied this passage tonight, how you convicted my heart. And I pray you continually give me a heart for your people and for their situations. Not to just hear of their problems. Not to just let it roll off the back of my head. But God, that really and truly we hear of your people, your children's issues, and they hurt our hearts. To the point of prayer. To the point of relying on you to make changes in their lives, Lord. Lord, I've learned a lot through the life of Nehemiah just in the first 11 verses and how I'm challenged and how I'm encouraged. And I pray tonight, Lord, as we open your word and as we look at these verses tonight, God, I pray that you would be glorified, that you would be honored. And ultimately, God, that we would all be challenged to be better men and women of God. That we would be willing to, to be people of prayer. Not just talk about it, but be a people that prays. A church that's open and on their knees to the Lord. I ask for guidance and the direction, Lord, in, in this ministry. We have major concerns, Lord. But God, nothing that is above what you're able to do. And Lord, tonight we submit those needs to you. We submit those challenges to you. And we trust that in the midst of all of even our personal challenges, Lord, the church's challenges, the school's challenges, God, you are capable and able to get us and move us beyond those things so that you might receive the glory, the honor, and the praise. Help us not to be people who shy down from big things because, God, when big problems exist, we can begin to see how big of a God you are. You created a universe by your mouth you created humanity and you love us and God I know that you are a God that is able that is capable and that desires to be honored and glorified and God we are in a situation where you can be exalted that people can see that you are truly who you claim to be God and I pray that you would exalt this place, this church, and this school for your glory, for your honor, that these students might hear about Jesus Christ. They might learn about how it is to live the victorious Christian life so that they, when they go through K-4 all the way to 12th grade, God, that they would be prepared to stand against the enemy when they go into college. I thank you for Virgil and his ability to teach these kids, God. They're being transformed. I can see it. And I thank you for that. And tonight as we open this book, I pray that it would challenge us to move, challenge us to change, not just be an informational message, but God, the one that's transformational. It doesn't matter if there's one person here or 2,000 people, God. The message is still here and you're here. And we ask for you to fill this place. I ask for you to empower me and fill me with the Spirit of God that I might speak your truth and ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to take just a moment to kind of give a historical layout. We, a couple of weeks ago, went through it pretty quick, but I think 
as by way of reminder, it's important for us to remember the context of Nehemiah. And so I trotted down some notes here, beginning with a man by the name of who? Abraham. And if you remember, Abraham was given a great promise. He was given a promise that, hey, of you I will make a great nation. It seemed almost impossible in his life, as his wife, the difficulties. But God promised a great nation, and he had two children, Ishmael and Isaac. Now Ishmael, though he wasn't the son of promise, he's not left out. God made of him a great nation. He made him twelve children. And then his son Isaac had two children. Do you remember their names? Jacob and Esau. Jacob, he has twelve children. Those twelve children become the twelve tribes of Israel. And within that, really he had thirteen kids. Twelve boys and one girl. But, but in the midst of that, there was one son by the name of Joseph. And Joseph became God's man. Joseph became a leader in Egypt during the time of the famine. And what his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. And so we see that life of Joseph. And how God used him to bring about repentance in his brothers' hearts. And then at the death of Joseph, the people of Israel became under the bondage for 400 years. And during that 400 years, at the end of it, a man steps onto the scene by the name of Moses. Now Moses is what? He's there to deliver the people out of bondage, into Israel, out, of, out of Egypt. But really, the, they're following the normal routine. They're pulled out of Egypt, and they enter back into this lifestyle of disobedience, of complaining and arguing and fighting and and wanting to go back to where they were in bondage for four years, and they had forgotten about how God had delivered them. And so they end up in the wilderness for 40 years. And really, Moses, he didn't make it into the promised land either because uh, because of his disobedience. And then after his death, we see a man by the name of Joshua. So God brings Joshua onto the scene to lead those people into the promised land. And then after he dies, there comes a falling apart in this nation morally. And so really we could call that time a time of degeneration in which people did what was right on their own eyes. And we call this they, as they entered into the, the era of the judges. And so we see that These people were doing what they wanted. There was no king. And they saw that, you know what, we want a king. They saw all of these other nations with with kings that protected them, that took care of them. And and they wanted a king, but God didn't want them to have a king. God wanted him to be their king. But but in spite of what he wanted, he gave them what they wanted. He gave them a king. And then we, we see the degeneration continue to happen after bad king, after bad king, and after bad king. And really, as we see this unfold, we see three key players, three key kings. Y'all remember those? That was Saul, David, and Solomon. And Solomon had the kingdom, and he said, Hey, listen, long as you live your life and you do what your father David did, hey, you'll be in good shape and you'll be all right. But if you depart, 
kingdom will be ripped from you. And what did he do? He got all these multiple wives and he started worshiping their little gods, these false gods, and he came and fell into idolatry. And so God told him, I'm going to rip this nation from you. He didn't do it under his ring, he did it under his son's ring. And so we see how sin not only infiltrates into us, it infiltrates into our children. And you remember what Rehoboam did. He said, hey, listen, if you think my father was difficult and hard on you, I'm going to make you work circles around that. That looks like children's play compared to what? And then what happened? A split happened in the kingdom. And so those 12 tribes of Israel, we see begin to split. We see 10 go to the north, which we call Israel, and we see 2 go to the south, which we call Judah. And those 10 tribes that lived in Israel, well... They were taken over by the Assyrians because they started to live their lives in pagan ways. And so the Babylonians came in. They uh, captured them. They took over the city of Jerusalem in 722 B.C. And after they were exported into Assyria, they just kind of fell into their lifestyle. They kind of fell into their immorality. And then we see the southern kingdom. They were standing strong, this little bitty nation in the midst of big people. We wonder how they made it so long, but then they started falling suit. And the next thing you know, they became rebellious. They were destroyed by the Babylonians. And so we see Assyria was taking Israel first, and then the Babylonians took the southern kingdom, Judah. And now there was some time later that another kingdom comes onto the scene. One more powerful than any. It become a, a new world mighty power. And this was Persia and the Medes. And, and if you remember, these people were under the leadership of King Cyrus. And King Cyrus, though he didn't know it, God was working in his heart to bring about his people, the people God loved, to put them back where he wanted them to be. And so we see there that God works in the heart of King Cyrus and he allows his people to once again return to their land and begin to rebuild that city. And in this process, we find three key people there to do a job in in God's city. And it begins, the first person, as he took his first group back under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And in the next group, that goes and follows under the leadership of Ezra. And then the last group of people that we will see later as we study through the book of Nehemiah goes back under the leadership of our man, Nehemiah. And if you will recall from last week, we saw that that Nehemiah was here. And he was approached by a group of people. One was his brother, and the others were Jews from Judah. They had been in this great city because of their ability to see what was going on. They saw the distress that was happening in Jerusalem. They saw that the cities had been destroyed, that the walls were down, that the gates were burned up. Now, Zerubbabel had been working there for quite a few years. Ezra had been working there for quite a few years. And so really, this wasn't some brand new news that came to Nehemiah. These men, if you remember, traveled over 800 miles to meet Nehemiah. They they came from Judah all the way to where Nehemiah was in Susa. 800 miles. We said it was just as long a distance from here to St. Louis. Now, I told you at that time that you could walk that 
in ten and a half, ten three-quarter days. Now, what I wanted to re- reemphasize is that's t- walking 24 hours a day. So if you spread that out over that time, just imagine how long it's going to take you to walk. Remember, it was in the middle of winter. He called it, the, the, it was during the time of Shizlev, which is November, December. It's cold. These guys were walking. And they see this man. They understand his potential. And so they were hoping that, that he could help fix the problem. And so they, they visited Nehemiah concerning the Jews who had escaped. And he asked about them. He asked about those that had survived the captivity, the captivity and, and he was curious on how it was in the city walls there in Jerusalem. And we saw there that there was a special care for the people, not so much the city, but the people first and then the city. And so tonight we're going to look at just how he deals with the information that he's received. We saw him receive the information last week. But we didn't see how he responded to that information. And so if you will, let's look in our Bibles tonight. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 4 to 11. Chapters 1, verses 4 to 11. He says this, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech you, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayers of your servant which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of this sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel which have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinance which you commanded to your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered where in the most remote part of heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place in which I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants, your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you. May your ear be a Attentive to the prayer of your servant, the prayer of your servant who delights to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. He says, Now I am, now I was the cup bearer to the king. There are a few points that I gathered from this message in my studies. The first one that we're going to look at is we see the reaction of Nehemiah. The second point is we see the request of Nehemiah. And thirdly, we see the remembrance of Nehemiah. And the reality is, is in the midst of these many verses, there are so many things that we could talk about, we could teach. It'd take months to really get through them all. And so tonight, I just want to look at the first point. And here... We want to be honest and true. We could stay in this one verse for several weeks. But I want to simply look and, ob- and look and observe the obvious points in the passage 
and what it's communicating. So let us look at the first point tonight. Number one, we see the reaction of Nehemiah. Last week we talked about perspectives and how there are many different perspectives and outlooks in which we can see things. We talked about last week how we could do something with good intents and hearts and somebody else perceive it in a wrong manner. And so we know that he's received bad news. We know that Nehemiah has just received terrible news in verse 3. But we never looked at how he responded to this bad news. Now I bring this up tonight because I want us to ask the question in our own lives. This is where the application begins. How do we deal with difficult times? How do we respond when we get bad news? How do we respond when we, when we find out we've lost a loved one? How do we respond when we, when we look in our bank account and it ain't near as high as we need it to do? Matter of fact, it's actually negative. How do we respond? How do we respond when we find out we're robbed? Somebody stole our AC units. How do we respond as a church? How do we respond in situations that seem absolutely impossible? There is absolutely no way, humanly speaking, that we can succeed in this. How do we respond? When it seems impossible. And we're going to learn a lot about those questions. But tonight we're going to learn how to have a proper response. And so I've entitled this sermon, Having a Proper Response. So let's see what Nehemiah does and how he responds. He says here in verse 1, When I heard these words, what what words was, was heard? He says, Concerning the Jews, how are they? Had they... The Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity in about Jerusalem. What's going on there, he says in verse 2. And then they said to me, the remnant there, the providence, who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the walls of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. And then it says this, when, he heard, when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God in heaven. Do you ever wish, in reality, that you could respond to things like that that were not good? You know, as a, even as a pastor, the reality is, is, is I hear of difficulties all the time. But why do I... Why do they fall on a cold heart so many times? But here we see a leader. And what we're going to find is the different ways he responds. It shows his genuineness in his leadership. I want us to notice five things that Nehemiah does in this verse. The first thing that he does is he sits down. Now, when I read that the first time, it didn't do anything for me. As I read it the second time, it didn't do anything for me. As I read it the third time, it didn't do anything for me. But as I read it, I began to think, what in the world is he sitting down for? And then I was reminded of a time in which I saw someone's house burning down. And the only thing they could do is fall to the ground in pain and hurt. In disappointment. I can't believe my house has fallen down. 
I can't believe my house is on. I just lost everything I own. And I'm also reminded of television. When we see someone finds out that they've lost a loved one, and the only thing they can do is just fall. Their emotions are spent. They're in utter shock. They're in pain and disbelief. And I believe that's what Nehemiah was feeling at this point when he had heard, hey, Zerubbabel had been there for years. Ezra had been there for years. Surely it's not the same as it was when they got there. This is how Nehemiah felt when he heard the news. His response shows us how much he cared about these people and about the God that he worshipped and about the city that brought about protection for this place to worship. The second thing we see he does is that he weeps. It says he wept. Now, I don't think I really need to explain that in great detail. There's not much theological. Listen, he wept. He sobbed. He cried uncontrollably. The news he had received wasn't in some fashion of new news. Like I said before, maybe his heart was, just had had enough. I can't believe that he's still this way. And it pained his heart. It hurt him. And I'm also reminded from God's Word how many men of God that we see in Scripture weep over situations, over sin, over their sin, over others' sin. I'm reminded as I look at Acts chapter 20 verse 19 as Paul speaks saying, Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that came upon me through the plot of the Jews. We see Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, 4, as he says, For out of, the, out, of, out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I especially for you. We see weeping from the prophets. Some like Jeremiah that says, My soul, my soul, I'm in anguish, oh my heart. My heart is pounding in me. I cannot be silent because you have heard, oh my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of the war. One can't help but be reminded of the fact that even our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the greatest leader of all, says he wept. When we weep, it shows our genuine care for people. You know, I can sit back and I can watch the X Factor. Y'all, y'all know what that is? Anybody ever watch that? It, it, it's, it's a singing show where they get on stage and they sing. And just the voices of people can make us cry. Because somehow, some way, it is in, invested in the people God's talent to worship Him. I want to ask this evening, as I ask myself sitting in my office today, when is the last time you wept over the people of God? When is the last time that we've really cared about the life of a soul?
I can't remember who it was, but one, one person said, maybe it was you, Virgil. We were going out to lunch, and, and there were cars going by, and he said, you know, every car I see, I'm reminded that they're going somewhere. I want to care for people, for their souls, to the point of being broken. Not just so I can be emotional. Emotionalism can, can hurt us, but it can also remind us of our inability. So that when we do become emotional, we do become pain, when we do become caring for people and their realities, their hurts, their pains, their sufferings, their difficulties, their trials, can break us to our knees. But I think in order to care about people, we have to put ourselves to the side sometimes. If our world is all about us and all of what we need, we will never be able to see the needs of other people. Now, I can't help but think of Nehemiah and how he could have responded. Oh, yes, he could have said to those people, when he found out the walls were down, you know, he could have said, Zerubbabel, man, you've done a terrible job. What have you been doing over there for 90 years? Ezra, what have you been doing all those years? You haven't, you haven't got anything accomplished. He could have said, yes, you know what? You, you people over there, your disobedience, your sin, that's why the walls are down. It's all your fault. But that's not what he did. He says he wept. He wept over the fact that the people were only a remnant. There was only a few people left there. He wept that the city walls were down. There was no protection for its people. A city without walls in those days was not a city at all. He wept because the gates had been burned down. And all the more he wept, I believe, because God is being mocked by these pagans. The third thing that we see that he does is he says he mourns. Listen, I only know of people mourning at the loss of a loved one. Yet, this man is mourning over what's happening in the city of Jerusalem and to its people. I've seen people mourn over loved ones, the loss of their house. We see people mourning over the Twin Towers as they fail. Great leaders, great godly people mourn over the fall of great nations. We should be be mourning at where America is going. It should break our hearts. Great leaders mourn over their own sin. Listen, it's my desire that I begin to to mourn over my own sin in my life. Because I want to be a great leader. And great leaders, as we will see, will mourn over their own sin as well. And it's the sins of others. Maybe we should begin to mourn more than we should begin to moan. I find myself moaning more than I do mourning. 
I moan about my circumstances. I moan because I don't have a house. I moan because my shirts don't smell just the way I want them to. I moan because I can't go buy just what I want to have when I want to have it. Maybe when I begin to see people for who they are and their problems and their struggles and their difficulties and I lose sight of everything I want, maybe then I can begin to mourn. The fourth thing that we see that Nehemiah does is it says he fasts. Now fasting, this is not a sermon about fasting, but just a brief overview and it simply means to skip I say skip something you want so that you can focus on God now we can skip meals that's typically what we see in the Bible when we see fasting but in our culture in our society people say well I can't fast because of health reasons you know maybe I'm a diabetic and I can't fast a meal well listen uh, the reality is is fasting to me is losing something you want for a time period in which you can focus on God. If you don't struggle with eating, fasting don't mean near as much to you. I mean, fasting for me, listen, if I fast, that's, that's a trial. Because I like eating. I mean, every meal, and sometimes an extra one. But now some of us can fast Facebook. You can skip a meal. Some of us can fast the Xbox or the PlayStation. Some of us can fast our little cell phones. We can fast the very thing in which we're addicted to. Because when we want that thing, we can remember we need to pray to God. I, I did a, a Facebook fast. I built a page and, and we had you know, 30 people join that page and say, we're going to fa- fast Facebook for a week. And every time we want to get on Facebook, we're going to open the Word of God and we're going to read for two minutes, three minutes. Because we figured every time we log on to Facebook, we spend at least, the average says 15 minutes. And I said, well, let's just read the Bible for three minutes every time we desire to get on Facebook. And I'm going to tell you, when I, when I have my phone, I, I'd just be walking. First thing I do is pull it out to get on Facebook. And then I remember, no, I can't do that. I'm fasting. I can't do... So then I open my Bible and I read for three minutes. And during that time, it was awesome because, because God began to, to show me some things. He began to work because I was spending time with the Lord. That's what fasting is about. When we skip that meal and we begin to get hungry in those... You know what those hungers are. You feel that thing in your stomach and you get, you're not. You're hungry. You feel like you're going to get sick. You open the Word and you start praying and you start reading. And you, God begins to reveal things to you. Now fasting, I want you to understand, is not man, man, manipulating God into doing something. It's simply saying, I'm going to humble myself to admit that apart from God I can do nothing. And I'm going to submit myself to prayer instead of food. Now prayer and fasting go together kind of like peanut butter and jelly. It just doesn't work good without the other. I mean, you can eat a peanut butter sandwich, but it ain't near as good if you have peanut butter and jelly. And so, they really accompany each other most of the time. We see people in the Bible fasting. I mean, tons of places. Jesus fasted and prayed. David fasted. Psalm 
69.10 says, When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. Acts says, When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Even in the selection process as an elder for the church, it talks about them fasting. So maybe, just maybe, that's a good idea. Was if we begin to grow as a church and we begin putting elders on board, maybe we should fast when we do those things. Esther 4.16 says, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Now listen, if we fast one meal a day, I can skip it every day, not a big deal. I could probably skip two meals a day. I could even go as far as to say, if I could drink water, I can skip a meal for a day. But I'm going to tell you what, in three days, if you don't eat day or night, you're going to be hungry. And you're going to be hurting. And you're going to need to rely on the Lord to get you through that. And that's what they're doing here. They're fasting three days, not day or night could they eat. And then he finishes, and I and my young women will also fast as you do. We find many verses about fasting. But let me ask this question. When's the last time we fasted? Now, fasting is not to be obviously spoke about. It's supposed to be one of those unseen things that we do, you know, in private. We don't fast to make ourselves look, you know, oh, I didn't shave and I'm skinny, I'm shriveling up. Now, you can fast as a team. Virgin and I have fasted together as a team. And we encourage one another. So you can fast together as a team, as an individual, or even as a church. The question is, when's the last time that we fasted? The fifth thing I want us to understand, in fact, or the fifth thing that, that he does is that he prays. He prays. His prayer is simply saying, God, you can, and I can't. And every good Christian, every good leader must be a praying woman or man. Now I say that understanding that I'm not near the prayer I should be. And as your pastor, I would like for you to pray for me that I can pray more. That I find the time to get on my knees and pray for the individuals in this church. For all of the needs in this body. Because Nehemiah, in the midst difficult situation, bad news, he prays. I thought today as I prepared this, I thought about the need for prayer in this body of believers. And listen, I I don't know a lot of the people in this church like you guys know. I'm sure you know of needs that I have no idea about. I think we need to pray 
for a few things as a church. And these are the things that break my heart. Is we got a church full of people that sometimes I wonder if church is a fad. Is it just something we do to check off on our list that we've done it on Sunday? Is it something we do just so we can make ourselves feel like we've made God proud by coming to church? It's not a fad. It's not a checking off of a list kind of deal. It's not about making God happy or feeling like you've done what you could do for that day and now we're going to go back to the normal Mondays of life. We're never going to open the Word of God. It's about coming to church to learn and to grow so that we can grow others in their faith. We have to get to that point where our desire is to see people discipled and to grow so that they can teach and train other believers in the body. If we do the same thing every week, every Sunday, and never get to where we are able to teach and instruct and to pray and to fast with one another and to weep and to mourn for the body of Christ and treat it as just like it's a little hangout. Listen, I just don't want to hang out. I can do that at the golf course. I can even do that at the bar. I can have some pretty good fellowship at the bar. And I can hear about people's problems at a bar. I spent many, many years of my life in a bar. I can do that on Sunday in a football game. And I know I can fellowship in a stadium with a bunch of other people who dress like me, who act like me, and who root for the same team, and we're on the same program together. We are more than just a hangout. We are more than just some place where we can come and pat each other on the back for being there Sunday and pay our little tithe and move forward. Listen, we're a training center. We're a place for healing, a place for encouragement, a place for growing, a place for weeping for one another, to help one another, to grow one another, to pray and to seek how each other needs. To see that come to exist, I earnestly believe it's going to take getting on our knees on behalf of this body. There's no reason this room should not be filled. We're worshiping God today. I don't care how long your day was at work. I don't care what your situation, I don't care it's raining outside. These dudes walked 800 miles in the snow, in the cold weather, to tell Nehemiah, hey, we need help to build this church. And I drove up in here in my AC this morning, made it here in 15 minutes, drove 12 and a half miles. It's not going to happen unless we get on our knees and plead for the people in this body. The culture is against us. The society we live is against us and it's dragging our peoples away from the church. But let's praise God because we got a church full of people here tonight. We got kids who are growing, who are learning, who are practicing to sing us a Christmas carol, musical in Christmas. We're opening the Word of God. God is present here. The culture wants you to have a hangout joint.
And they can offer you that through everything else. Through a club, country club experience. But I can tell you right now, Abundant Life Ministries is not the place for you if it's a country club hangout. We want a team that's willing to work and to serve and to grow and to pray and to invest and to live their lives for Jesus Christ. Sunday's not enough. We need God every day. We need prayer every day. We need to fast every week at least. The son prayed. The son fasted. The son wept. The son had concern for the people. How much more do we need to have it? We see the reaction of Nehemiah. And next week we're going to begin to look at the request of Nehemiah. We're going to get in the details of what it is to pray and how we are to pray. We can talk about praying, right? We can read books on praying, right? I've read numerous books. Ian Bound, Oswald Chamber. But sometimes we need to lay them books down and start praying. So next week we're going to look at that request and how we can pray. And so I want to encourage you this week. Take a meal. Skip it. Spend time with God in prayer because I'm telling you right now. What we have before us is impossible with man. It is impossible with man. But I truly believe with a few people on their knees, genuinely seeking God, with God all things are possible. Let's pray.